Um, So today's reading is from John 1, uh, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. These are the words of God. Uh, Please have that passage open uh, as I speak. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been going through a series called Knowing God. Um, We've looked at different characteristics of our God, that he's a holy God, a loving God, a gracious God, and so on. And today we're coming to the last of the series, and I think probably the high point in the series, not because it's my sermon, uh, (laughs) but because we've reached Christmas. Uh, Happy Christmas. Hope it's not too early to wish you a happy Christmas. Today we're talking uh, about the incarnate God, Emmanuel, the God with us, Jesus, the Word became flesh. See, if we want to know God, and surely if you've been here for these last few weeks, we've been reminded both that we desperately want to know him, but also really need to know him, then we need, this passage tells us, to look no further than to Jesus. See, here in this passage is laid out the answer to some of the most common objections that people have to the Christian faith. How can I believe in something or someone that I can't see? How can I trust this God that I've been hearing about these last few weeks, how can I know that he really cares about me, cares about my life, cares about this world and the situations we find ourselves in if I can't see him or hear him? And actually, if you're a Christian, you probably ask yourselves those same questions at times as well. We can often feel that God is unremote, sorry, is remote, uninvolved and uncaring. We can if we're not careful, if we don't remind ourselves of passages like this frequently, we can live like functional atheists. I don't know how many of you are into Marvel Cinematic Universe. Stephen, 
Is that within your vein of experience? Okay, good. Well, there's this character called Iron Man. We were watching a Spider-Man film last night. There's this character called Iron Man. He, I'm not really into it that much, so forgive me if you're a real geek in this area. Uh, he is an inventor called Tony Stark, an inventor and an entrepreneur, and he has made himself an Iron Man suit, and which means he can go to the rescue when the world's about to hit catastrophe. Uh, but the thing about this Iron Man suit is it's remote control, mainly. So most of the time, when Iron Man comes to the rescue, it's actually not Tony Stark at all. It's just the suit. And he can just stay, Tony Stark can stay at home, uh, remote, uninvolved and uncaring. And I think that's often the way that we perceive God. And this passage, John 1, is telling us very clearly that had we lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine, we could have seen God. It's a as, as historical reality, ignore the conspiracy theorists, it's a histor as historical a reality as the moon landing. And so we're going to turn to our passage and we're going to see what this passage tells us about who God is and why, how we know that he can care for us in those situations where we wonder where is God. Now again, if you've been with us any time at all, you'll know that at the at this church, we take the Bible very seriously. And Nigel, our pastor, usually will preach his way through a passage like that. But I hope you'll forgive me that while the cat's away, uh, I'll do something a little different, partly because this whole theme of the incarnate God slightly daunted me a bit. But also, as Becky's pointed out, this passage is not just complex to read, there's so much in here. Uh, I thought about it like... Do you know that 240 billion litres of water every day comes over Niagara Falls? So trying to, I think, do this whole passage justice is like trying to pour that 240 billion litres of water into one 30-minute drinkable glass. So what I would say is if you are not yet a Christian and really want to start grappling with what do Christians think about God, how can they believe in a God that they haven't seen, then this passage is one for you to swim around in with a Christian friend. What we're going to do today is splash around in one pool, which kind of gathers at the bottom of Niagara Falls, which is uh, sentence 14. Uh, in fact, even the first half only of sentence 14. But it's a crucial sentence, a crucial verse, if we want to understand the Christian faith. And in particular, I want us to look at three battles that have taken place through history that have been fighting over the truths of this particular verse and what those implications are for us as Christians. But before we look at the fights, we have to think about what's up for grabs. If you think about it in heavyweight boxing terms, what are the belts that are being fought for? Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but I used to love boxing, and then I got married, and that kind of got taken away, that love, because I married somebody who hates boxing. But as a child in the 80s, 70s and 80s, I remember uh, marvellous Marvin Hagler. Do you remember him? And Tommy the Hitman Hearns. And I remember shows you how long ago it was, setting my video to record a Barry McGuigan fight in Las Vegas and waking up the next morning to find the tape had run out before the f fight ended. There was no internet in those days. Uh, but in verse 14, we've got some very important belts. If you think about boxing and the weigh-ins, you get the reigning champion coming in with the belt around his waist, uh, and these are the belts that are being fought for. And at the end of the fight, they hold the belt aloft over their heads. It's the prize, it's the glory. They're the symbols of what's being fought over. And in verse 14, we've got three belts in particular that I want us to think about before we look at these three fights. So again, verse 14 tells us, The word became flesh and dwelt, or made his dwelling among us. 
Or another translation of the Bible, the message, puts it like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So belt one. Belt one, in my mind's eye, I see this belt being carried out with the Rocky music playing. Do, 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 you know, that. And the, 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 the lights go down, the smoke goes up, the champion comes out, got his belt around his waist or holding it up above his head. It's the kind of build-up to the main fight itself. So the first few verses of John 1 are the build-up to verse 14. There's this, this is going to be confusing, so bear with me. There's this word, the word, in the passage. Uh, so verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John uses this word, logos, to describe a person, Jesus. In the beginning was the word, verse 1. And nobody reading that passage who knows anything about their Bible shouldn't be thinking to themselves, that sounds quite familiar. I've read that in the very beginning of my Bible, in Genesis. John wants us to know that his book is about the creator God, the same God as back in Genesis 1, acting in a new way in his creation. The long biblical story which started back in Genesis 1 or, or before that is coming towards a climax uh, that the creator always intended to have and that's going to be through this logos, this word. And if you look at me with John 1, there's two bookends. Uh, there's verses 1 and 2 which is talking about the word, and then verses, verse 17 and 18. And that John's trying to make it very clear that the word was God and is God and is intimately close to God. Jesus was and is the word and is God. And the rest of the passage, and verse 14 in particular, between these bookends, looks at the word's relationship not to God, but to us and to his creation. So Jesus is, is the divine word who was there from the very start. The word through whose things all things were made. And the word that in Genesis 1 brought light, according to our passage here, is bringing light again. So the first belt is Jesus is the word, the divine word, the logos. And belt 2, verse 14, the word became flesh. Now, this word, uh, became flesh, is where we get our phrase incarnation from. It comes from the Latin carno. So when you eat chili con carne, chili with meat, or carnivorous, you're meat-eating or flesh-eating. Uh, so the incarnation speaks of the God who is enfleshed in the person of Jesus. Uh, someone described it as, they used the phrase, literally, if somewhat crassly, God with meat on. And John is using another word here, which the word flesh is the word sarx, S-A-R-X. So John doesn't just mean Jesus became a man or took on a body. The word flesh really carries with it a sense of vulnerability and frailty. I think it's the most blunt term John could have used to make the point that while Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. Romans 8 tells us that what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So in other words, Jesus took on our human weakness. The divine logos, the divine word, became flesh. So belt two became flesh, and belt three, uh, the word made flesh dwelt, or made his dwelling among us. And again, I think John is trying to throw his readers back to the Old Testament here, 
Uh, he uses a Greek word. I've got no idea if this is how you pronounce it, but this is how I like to pronounce it. He uses the Greek word skenu. I rhyme it with canoe. Skenu, which literally means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. It's the same word that you read about in Exodus uh, when the Israelites were travelling and God came and dwelt among them in the tabernacle. The glory of God descended. Uh, He pitched his tent among people. The tabernacle was the holy place where the Lord dwelt. He was present with his people. He heard their prayers. He forgave their sins. uh, And he manifested his glory. It's the place where sacrifices were made. Offerings were made to atone for our sin. And years later, when the temple of God was going to be destroyed by the Babylonians, Ezekiel tells us that the glory of God left the earth and went back to heaven. And now 600 years later, we hit our passage, verse 14. The glory of God has come back, this time in in another tent. But this tent is the body of Jesus. And again, we're seeing his glory. John is saying, he's back. God is pitching his tent tent amongst us again. Jesus Christ, who is the word, dwelt, tabernacled, skenoed, don't think that's a word, among us. And just as the people in the Old Testament had seen God's glory shown in the tabernacle, so God's glory is now being revealed uh, in Jesus. And all that the Old Testament tabernacle foreshadowed, all of that has now been fulfilled and delivered in a much greater way through Jesus. He is the presence of God in our midst. He's the all-atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One scholar put it like this. In the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord came at times when God was very close. And there has been no time in earth's history, talking about verse 14, when God was any closer than this. We've seen his glory. So in verse 14, we've got these three belts that as Christians we must hold aloft, we must fight for, that Jesus is the word, the Logos, who was and is and always will be fully God, that Jesus became flesh, sarks, fully human, and he skenoed, he pitched his tent amongst us. And C.S. Lewis says that this verse contains the Bible's greatest miracle, that Jesus is fully man and Jesus is fully God, 100% man and 100% God. And that maths is pretty tricky for us to get our heads around. But if we've been Christians for a while or been coming to church for a while, it's the sort of thing that we talk about every Christmas. We've even named our church Emmanuel Epsom, God with us. Uh, But this is such an important doctrine and belief of the church that it's been fought over so many times through history because of its centrality to our understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. So we're going to turn our attention to three fights They get shorter as I go through each one. Uh, And you'll see that that all the fights overlap in some way. And normally, the person who's wrong in each fight appears to be right at first sight. But as we dig deeper, we'll get that they don't understand and they don't believe in what John 1 verse 14 is telling us. Okay, so we've got three belts and these three fights. So fight one, the God who speaks. Now, I don't know about you, but... um, There are quite a lot of times when I turn on my television, watch the news, watch things like the bombings in Sri Lanka, or pick up the phone and speak to a friend who's having uh, relational issues, or lost a job, um, or got somebody who knows somebody who's poorly, or just sometimes life is difficult. I sometimes wonder, where is God in this? 
Why can't I hear him speaking into these situations? And at those times, we really want to grasp a glimpse of who God is and really feel his presence and power and hear him speaking and hear his voice. Uh, But too often, he seems that distant and remote God. And verse 18, the first part of verse 18 of John 1, can ring around in my head. No one has ever seen God. But fortunately, John doesn't finish his gospel there, and our Christian experience doesn't finish there, because the promise of John's gospel is that it's God's Son, who is close to God the Father's heart, who's made him known. If we want to see God, we have to look to Jesus. God becomes in Jesus tangible, physical, visible, hearable. And this idea of the invisible God becoming visible, taking on human flesh to speak to us, has got a posh Latin phrase, deus loquens, which literally means the speaking God, or the eloquent God. The author of Hebrews, another book in the Bible, puts it like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus is God's most eloquent word. But we can only trust that word if it is God's word. And that's our first fight. And in opposing corners, we've got two church leaders from about 1,600 years ago, one guy called Arius and another guy called Athanasius. Now, Arius was a bit concerned about this teaching of the Incarnation because he said it's going to undermine our belief that there's only one God of monotheism. At first sight, that seems pretty good news. But he then began teaching, well, actually, no, Jesus himself was created. He's some sort of kind of angelic being somewhere between people and God. And so Arius didn't believe that Jesus had always been, that he was the eternal word, and that therefore there was going to be a time when Jesus wouldn't exist either. He didn't believe that the divine word could become flesh because that would mean there were two gods. Athanasius said, no, you're wrong. He understood that if Jesus had been made at some point, there'd be a point when time when Jesus wasn't made, and therefore nothing that Jesus said about the future and eternity and our salvation and forgiveness of sins could really be trusted or believed. See, only the creator can save creation. Only God can break the power of sin. So unless Jesus was fully God, he was part of the problem, not the solution. God had to take on a weak, frail, but sinless human body so that he could give it up to death in our place and take the punishment of sin that we deserve upon him. Jesus had to be the second Adam whose righteousness would save all those who are in him by faith. And this contrasts Christianity so clearly with other religions. Other religions, you have to work your way up to God to make yourself right with God. But here, in the incarnation, God has made himself known fully and personally. He's left the glories of heaven. He's taken on human flesh as a rescue mission. But all at the same time is in no way stopping being the eternal, infinite God that we've heard so much about in these last few weeks. When this battle, this fight is over, and Athanasius is rightly pronounced the winner, I think he would look into the camera that's shoved in his face, and he might say say something like this. The incarnation's promise is that God has spoken of his great love for us in the world, most visibly, most reliably, most clearly, most definitively, 
in Jesus. God's word made visible and hearable. The incarnation has always been and always will be God's way of dealing with the problem of sin and death. Or another pastor put it like this more recently. The incarnation makes the atonement possible. If Jesus had just been another guy, his sacrifice would have been of no eternal value. If he'd just been perfect, he could only have secured his own salvation. In order for his sacrifice to atone for the sins of all believers, he had to be divine, he had to be deity, he had to be God. If you want to know God, if you want to see him, if you want to hear from him, if you want the answer to the question, does God really care about my struggles and my situations and the state of the world, then we need to look to the baby in the manger at Christmas and then the man hanging on the cross at Easter and we can see and hear God's love for us expressed most eloquently. So fight one is we have a God who speaks, but fight two is about the God who understands us. And this overlaps significantly with the first one, but this is about regarding the idea that it was scandalous that a holy God could take on dirty physical human flesh. Uh, So Arius and Athanasius in our first fight were fighting over whether Jesus was truly God, but in this fight, they're fighting over whether Jesus really was truly flesh. And in the blue corner was Marcion, uh, a member of the church in Rome, and he found it disgusting, impossible, that our holy God could take on evil, weak, fallen creation, sarks, flesh. He said that Jesus, as the divine word, could never have anything to do with weak flesh. And that actually Jesus wasn't really born, he didn't really suffer, and he didn't really die. He just said that Jesus came down. Now, if Arius in our first fight was trying to defend the church's belief in one God, here's Marcion wanting to protect the church's belief in God's goodness, but both of them are denying the idea in John 1.14 that the word became flesh. So, fighting Marcion was this guy Tertullian. He was a writer, an early Christian writer, and he said, no, the very heart of the incarnation, and this is so important for us as Christians, is that Jesus was born in the same way as us, that he took on human flesh and that he could descend and come into and thrust himself into a chaotic, mucked-up world that we live in, a world that's full of pain and disappointment and disease, the world that we know. At the centre of Tertullian's understanding and our understanding of the incarnation is that God shed his glory and power and became one of us, so as to be with us and for us. We have a God who really can sympathise with what you're going through, the ups and downs, the hopes and fears of life, because God's experienced them firsthand in Jesus. We find a God in the incarnation who hasn't abandoned his creation, but rather is determined to rescue at any cost, and to restore our relationship with him at any cost. We have a God that we can trust, to go with us wherever we go, whatever we're doing. And we have a God that therefore is worthy of our adoration and proclamation. And I think as Tertullian's arm was lifted high by the referee, I think he'd want us to hear, God understands you because God's been one of us. God understands you because God has been one of us. And it's the God then we can turn to with any fear, any worry, without fear of any shame or rejection. And think of the lengths that God's gone to, to rescue you. See, in response to our human sin and rebellion, God doesn't withdraw, wind the world up and then leave us to our own 
devices. He doesn't come and conquer us through divine power. He commits himself to us by taking on our human experience. In Jesus, we have the utter assurance that God both knows us, cares about us, and loves us. And that leads me to my final battle. It's the oldest battle and the shortest. Uh, in one corner is someone like Aristotle, or indeed, quite a lot of the world today. He described God as the unmoved mover. What he was saying was that if God was really God, he had to be unchanging, impassive. He was uh, dispassionate and impersonal and remote. Uh, and it is a view, I think, that many people, if they believe in God, hold of him today. That God is remote, doesn't get himself involved in human affairs, and certainly isn't the sort of God who's going to come and tabernacle amongst us. But opposing this view is someone like Martin Luther, or, if you're a Christian here today, many of us. Because we would argue that the Incarnation and the Gospel say no to that view, that God is deeply, deeply personal. He cares passionately, and he intervenes personally for us in the most vulnerable way possible. You just need to look at the cross to be able to see that. Martin Luther argued that Jesus reveals the fatherly heart of God. By sending his son, and remember that God described himself as being well pleased with his son, to die for us so that we may have life, God shows the lengths that he'll go to so that we can know his love. Even more amazingly, when God turned his eyes on Jesus, away from Jesus on the cross, he did so that he can look at us and look at us with those same parental eyes and say that he's well pleased with us. Romans 8 reminds us that if we put our trust in the incarnate God, then we're children of God, that we've been adopted by him and can call him Father. God the Father's decision to send Jesus into the world has to, definitively assures us of his parental love for us. The incarnation is supposed to be, and it is, the knockout punch to the argument that God doesn't care. It reminds us of the depths of God's love for us, to his unyielding commitment to us, the lengths that he'll go to, to restore relationship between us and him. So we have a God who speaks, we have a God who understands, and a God who loves by making himself vulnerable, even to death on the cross. And more than 50 years ago now, Yuri Gagarin, first man in space, peered through, I was going to say opened his curtains, I doubt they had curtains, <laughs> peered, peered through the window in his space shuttle and declared that he couldn't see God. Now, I'm not a cosmonaut, but I'd want to tell him that he was looking in entirely the wrong place. There's no need to be in the dark about God, what he's like, what his characteristics are like, whether he cares about us. God himself has actually come and pitched his tent in our neighbourhood and called us to watch him and to listen to him and get to know him through his son Jesus. John Piper, another well-known pastor, puts it like this. When you watch Jesus in action, you watch God in action. When you hear Jesus teach, you hear God teach. When you come to know what Jesus is like, you know what God is like. Friends, if we want to know God, we need to look to Jesus. Christians here this morning, two very quick points for you as we draw to a close. Firstly, if you grasp this implication of the incarnation, do you let it impact your relationship with God or are you living as a functional atheist? When life seems hard, 
Do you know the truth of the incarnation, that God loves you so much, so desperately wants to be in a relationship with you, that he gave his one and only son, so that when you believe in him, you might have eternal life? Friends, that's what we need to preach to ourselves daily. We're going to sing in a minute that God the Word took life to conquer death. And that's a wonderful truth, and it should be a massive reassurance to us when times are tough. And secondly, and we haven't had time to touch on this whatsoever, but I'm hoping you will do in life groups this week, please uh, take some time to read Philippians 2. Consider how God stooped to our level to display his love for us, and then think about the call in there to imitate Christ's humility. The incarnation has got so many implications for us about how we relate to other people, especially those who are weak and vulnerable and, and difficult to love. We haven't got time today, but please, on, in life groups, take some time to read Philippians 2 and think about what the incarnation has to do about our relationship with other people. And to our friends who aren't yet Christians here today, the Almighty God, this passage tells us, the Almighty God of creation has drawn near and made himself known in as personal and as costly a way as possible. And verse 16 tells us, that out of his fullness we've all received grace in place of grace already given. And the call is very simple, really. Will you receive that free gift of grace? It's the only way to know forgiveness of sin and removal of guilt and eternal hope and the God that we've been talking about, the God who knows us and cares for us. Earlier on I talked about uh, Spider-Man and Iron Man. So as I said, last night we were watching the Spider-Man film and uh, Spider-Man gets himself into all sorts of difficulties, but he's quite an arrogant superhero uh, and he doesn't like anybody coming to his rescue. But uh, basically there's a boat that's been cut in half and he's trying to fix the two halves together and he's failing. And so Iron Man's suit comes through the air and deals with the problem. And afterwards, Iron Man's suit is standing there and effectively saying, aren't you glad I came to your rescue? And Spider-Man looks at him and said, if you really had cared about this situation, you'd be here, because normally it's just the empty suit. And at that point, the suit opens and out steps Tony Stark. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, God cared so much about the world that he sent his only son. He didn't stay remote and distant. He came and pitched his tent amongst us. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us will each of us receive his grace of verse 16 and put our trust in him today. Let's pray.